Tonight, I have the honor to be sitting in the living room of Dr. and Mrs. Kahin. And we met exactly two years and one month ago on my way to Cape Town to do a Shabbaton there in honor of the Shabbat project in Cape Town. And I had to stop over here. And I, I, was, I put online in my Shiviti forum, hey, I have seven hours in London Heathrow, and I feel like, who just sits around waiting for seven hours? Is there something I can do here? Is there anyone who would want to learn with me? Find me five people, let's do a shiul. And I got two messages simultaneously. One from Sina, and one from Daniel, uh, who's back there somewhere uh, with Olivia. And he's, both of them said, let's make something work. We can figure it out. And the problem was, I didn't have a regular stopover, because nice thing to be regular. I had a stopover smack in the middle of a working Wednesday, Thursday, something in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day. And so the latest I could have a class was 4 p.m. And everybody's working at 4 p.m. And anyways, they made it work. Sina came to pick me up. Danielle came to take me back. We had a shiur and Tiferet Eyal by Dayan Kadam. And there were some 50 or 60 people. There was a big crowd that showed up. I guess a lot of people don't have jobs in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember sitting there and saying, oh my gosh, they didn't know that. And all, most of the people there had already learned with me before on YouTube. And so people were coming to ask me questions about shiurim that I, didn't, I don't even remember that I gave them, but they remember them. And I called my wife and saying, what are we doing with Shiviti just in San Diego and LA? You know, what about Shiviti UK? That's a great idea. We'll do this. We'll put these classes together. We'll learn every week. And like every three or four months, you'll fly to the UK and meet with people. Great idea. That was February of 2020, okay? <laughs> March of 2020, I'm like, let's plan the, and then boom, COVID happened. I'm not sure it ended, but COVID started, <laughs> yes? And then it was, if, if I thought America was bad, what you guys were going through over here in terms of not being able to make flights into the UK, yes? It just, it didn't happen. It didn't happen for two years. And I'm, I'm grateful uh, for that moment that I came in here. Uh, Elisha and Zahava said, why do you bring the rabbi for breakfast? And I sat here with breakfast and I've never seen kids dress so nicely to go to school. My, ch my children, we put them in uniforms. It's like polo shirts and pants. And they're nothing special. He has suits and ties and proper. And, uh, and we had breakfast here. And I got to meet uh, Elisha. And it was, it was a real honor to meet him. And we've kept up over the last two years. And this time around, I finally thought, like, I'm coming back to family. I'm visiting family. And that then includes Sina and Avi, uh, who I know you all know them. Uh, but together with Harav uh, Dweik, who still lives in New York, have literally single-handedly changed the Jewish conversation in the world right now. I don't have any other words to say it. There's no exaggeration here. That if any of you speak Farsi, which I don't, but I know one word, this is not tarof. I'm not flattering you. This is not some kind of give and take. No, Rabbi, not really. Really, really what I'm telling you now is true. Until the Chavura happened, all of the rabbis that are involved in the Chavura, we were responsible for our little corners of the universe. We had our little parts, and even those of us who had a little bit of a more global audience, we still were involved in our, our small-scale operations. And the Chavua managed to bring together not just a diverse group of rabbis, but perhaps, I'm taking myself out of the category, some world-class diverse Chachamim, bringing them to the same table and connecting them with world-class Talmidim and Talmidot. And, and the, that fusion of these two groups of people the Chavura two years ago was just an organization on paper. Today, it's a force to be reckoned with. And anyone who's seriously involved in Jewish learning is familiar with everything that these two individuals are doing and all of those who help them and all of the, all of the Nidvim Elehem, I'm including all of you. You've created something that you should only be proud of. There's nothing else you could do aside from being proud of it. And it's in the spirit of that that I want to be here tonight and share with you tonight. I'm going to apologize to you in advance. I got new contact lenses. Okay, so I did it because I wanted to see your faces. I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to see my papers. So if, if for some reason one of those words just looks wrong, I might excuse myself for two minutes and come back with glasses if it's okay with you. I have to give my disclaimer. And there's an importance to speaking to an audience that is family. So Danielle and Olivia, they're responsible for us being here. And I came, I felt like, to the bar mitzvah of my nephew. That's what I felt like I came here for. I heard Yishai read the Torah, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting nachat, and I'm not even his parents. I don't imagine how they're feeling. <laughs> I want my kids to read like that. That's what I want my kids to read like. And it's important to come to family, because I'll tell you a story about a rabbi who spoke in a place that he didn't know anybody. They tell a story about a rabbi who came to a bit of Knesset, and there's a whole audience of people. And the rabbi gets up, he's prepared the sermon for many, many, many months. Well, before this, there was another rabbi who prepared a sermon for many months. 
I was just interviewed now by the San Diego newspaper about how many days it takes me to prepare a sermon. If I don't prepare sermons, I don't know how long it takes. People write notes and all these things. Uh, this rabbi prepared for his Yom Kippur sermon for six months. He was working on the sermon, the sermon, the sermon. Finally, it's the night before Yom Kippurim, and him and the president of the synagogue, they're in the Bidah Knesset, arranging chairs, putting on machzolim. They'll make sure the room is ready, the white tablecloth, the whole thing. And in, the will break a group of terrorists. They take the rabbi and the president hostage. And uh, the rabbi and the president are terrified. They say, are you going to kill us? He says, yes, we're going to kill you. Of course, that's why we're here. But you have one final request. The rabbi thinks, final, what can he ask the terrorist for final request? And he says, you know, I prepared this sermon for six months. If you don't mind, I could just stand in the front of the room and pretend I'm giving my Yom Kippur sermon. <laughs> the terrorist said, sure, that's what works for you? Please. They turn to the president, what's your final request? He says, please just kill me first. <laughs> So this rabbi, he didn't survive, but another rabbi, he came to speak in a place. Sina, that's why you don't let me title the classes, right? So, <laughs> all my titles, you should see them. Sina, he grounds them. That's the word. For the UK, there's a different English we speak here. <coughs> like my joke in Barra Park. Another story for a different time. So this rabbi came to speak in this community. There's hundreds of people in the audience, and as he starts speaking, Everybody falls asleep. That's very usual. Most of us who speak to communities, everyone falls asleep. Sometimes the speeches are so long, they have to do Nitilat Yadayim after the speech. <laughs> and here, everyone is sleeping except for one man. One man is looking at the rabbi, and the rabbi feels so happy. At least one person listens to the speech. And every few minutes, the guy listens to something the rabbi says, and he disagrees. He shakes his head. He says, oh, you don't agree? Let me prove to you why I'm right. He quotes, Rambam, Just quoting and quoting. And after a while, the guy nods his head. He says, yes. And after a few minutes, he says, no. And the whole night, the rabbi is busy engaging with this guy. And he's arguing with him. It's such a brilliant time. Chacham came to my class. He's so honored. At the end of the shiur, everybody wakes up. They clap for the rabbi. give him a standing ovation. And they go home. And the rabbi goes over to this guy. He says, tell me, my dear friend, what's your name? Which chacham of which community do you belong to? He says, rabbi, I don't even know. I'm not a chacham. I'm not a rabbi. I'm just a farmer. And I lost my goat. And this goat is very precious to my family. It's a source of Panasa for us. And they told me, if you want to go look, go look in the synagogue. Maybe your goat ran to the synagogue. And I came here, and I saw you up there. And Rabbi, from some angles, you look like my goat. <laughs> and from other angles, you don't look like my goat. I said, Rabbi, I can tell you, after listening to you for two hours, I didn't understand a blessed word that you said. But for sure, you're not my goat. <laughs> Sometimes when I walk into places and I speak, I look at the people looking at me, they're trying to figure out if I'm their goat or not. They have no idea how to eat or digest anything that is coming out of my mouth. A little bit over here. So. When I come to a place like here, like the Chalwa, people have been exposed to actual Torah learning in the framework that Sina was speaking about. I feel like I'm speaking to friends. Many of you have learned with me already before. For some of you, this is your first. Buckle your seatbelts and get ready. But it's speaking to people that I know I can trust with information that I want to share. And tonight's shiul, I know I'm limited by time, but tonight's shiul is really in my heart on a sleeve. Tonight's shiul is not an eight-series part on whether cheese from non-Jews is kasher. I know that that excites a lot of people. <laughs> like, really, wow, the cheese. I once said, someone said, what is, the, what is learning Torah in the 21st century like? I said, watch. If I gave a shiur on whether potato crisps are kasher without a certification, I could fill up an auditorium with 500 people. And if I were to give a class on the secrets of the unity of Hashem, I would probably be sitting there alone with my wife who always comes from moral support. <laughs> That's the kind of generation I live in. And so, yes, I agreed. Thank you for giving an eight-part Kashrut series. I hope, I hope Baruch Sheftarani Ma'on Shoshazeh, I fulfilled my obligation towards the Chavuah. I want to share with you something that's really in my heart. I was accused a while ago of having post-Girush disorder. It's a good diagnosis. Essentially what it meant was that I seriously entertain sources that happen after Andalusia and Spain. And that's correct, I do. And I'm very proud of the disorder. And much of what I wish to share with you tonight is why I'm proud of my disorder. And then to tell you that, I have to share with you a few, a few important stories. One of the uh, board members of the Chavua and the teacher in the Chavua is Chacham Professor Tzvi Zohar. And until... Until the last year or so, Professor Tzvi Zohar was a man I admired through his writings. 
And uh, Sina, like you always connect people, managed to connect me in person. And Professor Tzidor and I spent a significant amount of time talking to each other. And since then, we've been in communication, though he's much better at answering his emails than I am. If you've ever tried sending me an email, you probably know that to be true. And over the months and months that we've been communicating in the last year, he reached out to me about a very important initiative, and I'm hoping that he's okay with me sharing. Uh, Professor Tzvi Zohar realized that as much as we've been pushing in the last decade or even more to research Sephardic Chachamim, we've researched very little about the Sephardic Chachamim who came to Israel, studied in Israel, and operated out of Israel. So we know a lot about the rabbis in Yemen, in Morocco, in Italy, in Iraq, in Algeria, in Tunisia, but the rabbis that were born in those countries and then came to Israel, or Sephardic rabbis that were born in Israel and studied in Israel, we know almost nothing about them in terms of an academic research setting. And he realized quickly also that academics know very little about these rabbis as well. But my wife is an academic. I don't know really what, and I know Sina's father is an academic. I'm not sure what academics really know much about because when they speak, you don't really understand much of what they're saying. There's a certain style of speech that is intended to leave um, less intelligent people like myself out of the conversation. But <laughs> Professor Tzvi Zohar, he understood that in order to find the answers to who are these Chachamim, he would have to reach out to their students and figure out maybe they could put together some information about them. And one of the rabbis on the list was Mori HaRav Yaakov Peretz, Shalazim Biwal, my rabbi, in Jerusalem. And he was looking, does anyone know this rabbi? And he reached out, I heard he's your rabbi, would you be willing to research him for us and perhaps present one day in a convention on, on HaRav Peretz? I told uh, Professor Zvizohar that I highly doubt Halaperet has any patience for me to interview him about Sephardic philosophy or anything. Halaperet says, um, if you talk too much pilpul in his life, he'll just throw you out of the bed of Midrash. There's no room for much um, deviation from what you're actually supposed to be doing in life. But if I could convince him that it will increase Yerat Shamayim in the world, then he may allow me to do so. So after I got the green light from Halaperet, they sent me the list of interview questions. It's not Professor Tzvihar didn't write them. The, the board of Bar-Ilan University, they put together this convention they want to know. So they had to answer a few questions. Where was the rabbi born? Where did he live? Where did he study? And one of those questions was, how obvious is Ashkenazi influence on him in his life? And this question was a very interesting question for me. And because I am I, I answered this question the way that only I would answer, and obviously not the way anybody else would like me to answer this question. Likely why I never got an email back. I said, you know, when Rabbi Yosef Massas quotes the Gaon of Vilna, wow, what a well-rounded Algerian Chacham. When Rabbi Eliyahu Mani, the Rosh Yeshiva of the Kabbalist Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, and then the Chief Rabbi of Hebron, who the Ben Ishchai in Baghdad used to send letters. When the Ben Ishchai didn't understand something in Kabbalah, he would send a letter to Rabbi Eliyahu Mani. And I have in my home a book of Rabbi Eliyahu Mani. It's written on Hasidut of Eastern Europe. The Baal Shem Tov, the Noam Elimelech of Lezhensk, he wrote this book about Hasidut of the European. What do they say? Wow, what a well-rounded Sephardic rabbi. But when a Sephardic rabbi today will quote a Gaon of Vilna or the Baal Shem Tov, ah, look how influenced he was by the Ashkenazim. What happened? What happened was that we Sephardim forgot what it really means to be a Sephardim. And that's what I want to teach you tonight. That's what I learned with you tonight. Because... The reason that we quote from other people is not because of influence, but it's precisely what makes, in my opinion, Sephardim Sephardim. In order to understand that, I want to share with you two more stories. When I moved back, well, before I moved back to the States, I taught for a number of years in the modern Orthodox post-high school Israeli gap year program. And in that, that uh, in Ben Midrash, Rav Soloveitchik was like the, the god of the world. I used to teach in a Datilumi place, Rav Kuk was god, a lot of gods in the world. And here, everything, the Rav this, the Rav that, the Rav, the Rav, and you have to get used to it, because you don't know, they say the Rav. Somebody once told me, the Rebbe said it. Which Rebbe? You know how many Rebbe's are in the world? You mean my wife's Rebbe? You mean his Rebbe? I don't know who, oh, the Rebbe. The Hei Haidiya. They paid a lot for the capital T and R. Which Rebbe are you talking about? I would tell you, oh, the rabbi said, and I'm referring to my rabbi. How, am I supposed, how are you supposed to know who I'm talking about? It's very presumptuous to use terms like the rabbi, the, the, the rabbi. And I saw, I said, I don't know what that, fine, I'm familiar. And I opened up one of Agaperez's books one day, and then there he quotes from Rabbi Soloveitchik of New York. That's what he calls him, Rabbi Soloveitchik of New York. And he quotes something from him about the Haggadah of Pesach. And I came to Rabbi Soloveitchik, so many, I didn't know you are familiar with the writings of Rabbi Soloveitchik. So what do you think about Rabbi Soloveitchik? I said, who? I said, Rosolovich, he's quoted in your book. I opened his book. He said, ah, him. I have no idea who he is. <laughs> I said, I have no idea who he is. He's in your book. 
do you, like, do you hold of the approach, the mentality? It's Rabbi Yonatan. I opened up one of his tefarim somewhere, and I saw something that I thought was true. And it was so true that I wrote it in my notes to be included in my next book. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he lives. I don't know if he's still alive. All I know is that what he said was true. So, I don't know who he is, but I know that what he said is true. Okay, fast forward. Another one of those mornings, I come to visit Agapet in his house. And I noticed on Agapet's book, I can't tell you which rabbi because you'll get offended. A book of a Hasidic rabbi from a few hundred years ago. He's not alive anymore. Some Hasidic rabbis from a few hundred years ago are still alive. But <laughs> he's not. And I open the book. I'm excited. Agapet has it on his book. I open it up. And Agapet has in the book entire paragraphs that have an X through the paragraph. And in the margin it says, Lonachon. It's not true. And I looked at Agapet and Agapet, you're literally editing this rabbi's book and writing, it's wrong in the margins. He said, Rabbi Yonatan, just because you learn from everybody doesn't mean you can't disagree with him. You have to know when someone says a sheker, even if he's a big Hasidic Rebbe, you have to cross it out and say he's wrong. And I learned another thing from Agapet. That as much as we accept truth from whoever says it, we are also not bound to accept one person's truth all the time. Because truth by its nature doesn't belong to one person. It doesn't belong to one school of thought. Chachmes Farad understood that. It's the reason why they were willing to learn from everywhere. The approach, the feeling though, is they were a little bit naive. They were a little bit gullible. How can you quote the Gaon of Vilna and the Baal Shem Tov on the same page? Don't you know those two people hated each other? Maybe you're influenced too much. You're quoting the Mishnah Bilwa in a book in Halakha. Come on, where's Sephardic? Who reads the Mishnah Bilwa? Such attitudes are very prevalent, especially in the Sephardic community, and unfortunately, especially in the more educated Sephardic community. Because the not-so-educated Sephardic community, you could quote whoever you wanted to quote, and they'll say, ah, Hashem. They don't really understand much of what's flying in front of their face. And so here, I wish to approach this topic to you, starting in a very different place. The place is, can I learn from a Chacham who's actually a bad person? So before I talk, can I learn from someone not Jewish? Before I learn from somebody who's a Chacham from a different denomination, can I learn from a Tamil Chacham who's actually a bad person? Now, surprisingly, this is a matter of debate. Let's read together. If you want sources, I recommend you go to shiviti.org. So S-H-I-V-I-T-I dot org. Forward slash London. So shiviti.org forward slash London, and there's two source sheets, one's for tomorrow morning, don't click on that one. In Masechet Makot, on page 17a, Chachamim are asked the question, there was a certain Tamil Chacham who had a bad reputation. What does it mean, a bad reputation? Whenever you see this term, bad reputation, it doesn't mean that he wasn't keeping Chalav Yisrael, okay? Bad reputation meant likely he was involved in some type of inappropriate relationship with someone who he should not have been in a relationship with. Believe it or not, it happens. And Chachamim want to know, what do we do with the Tamil Chacham who is in an inappropriate relationship? Amar Rav Yehuda, Rav Yehuda says, what should I do? If we excommunicate him, it's a problem. Because this rabbi is so important that the other rabbis all need him for the information that he contains. But if we don't excommunicate him, we're desecrating Hashem's name in public. How could you allow for a person like this to remain a member of the rabbi? And the Chachamim begin to debate this. And in the next paragraph on page 1, Rabbi Yehuda said to Rabbi Barchana, Have you heard anything about this topic? And he tells him, Rabbi Yochanan said, the Pasuk says in Malachi, Ki daat. The lips of the Kohen will keep, they will contain knowledge. And they should request Torah from his mouth. Because he is an angel of God. If the rabbi is like an angel of God, they should learn Torah from him. And if he's not an angel, you cannot study Torah from him. At this point, I should probably get up and leave. But this is, Rabbi Yochanan said, that if a rabbi is, has a, like, a serious flaw, you can't learn Torah from him. So what do they do? They excommunicated this rabbi. They put him shamta, they excommunicated him. At a certain point in time, Rabbi Yehuda became sick. 
and the Chachamim came to visit him. And the Chachamim came to visit him along with this Tamit Chacham who was excommunicated. When Rabbi Uda saw this Tamit Chacham who was excommunicated him, he started laughing at him. And this Tamit Chacham is really offended. He says, you're laughing at me? It's not bad enough that you excommunicated me. But now you're laughing at me? He said, I'm not laughing at you. He said, I'm laughing because I know that certainly I have a portion in the world to come if I wasn't afraid to excommunicate you under all the pressure, all the reasons I shouldn't have excommunicated you, I'm so happy that I took the right stand in this life and excommunicated you. And then Rehuda dies. Rehuda dies. And this rabbi realizes, hey, now that my enemy is dead, let me get reinstated as a rabbi. He comes back to the Bermidash. He wants, can I become a rabbi again? Can you remove the shamta from me? Can you get rid of this excommunication from me? And they're not sure, so they consult with other Chachamim. That brings us to page 2. Ravami said that there was a situation once where the maidservant of Rabbi Yehuda excommunicated somebody, and the Chachamim took three years before they considered getting rid of her excommunication. If that was the maidservant of a Chacham, can you imagine what happens if a Chacham actually excommunicates somebody? The Gemara continues, I'm intentionally going to omit some of the details. Well, I'll read a little bit to you, but, but you'll use your imagination. What ended up happening was they thought of releasing him. They ended up not releasing him. At the bottom of page 2 at the right, a wasp came and stung him. There's a machalok at exactly where they stung him. One says they stung him on his arm. That's a nice reading of this. Another opinion in the Gemara says, you can read. Okay. I, I Actually, I took out the word. Uh, they stung him in the same part of his body he did Averot with. And then he died. It's painful. So what happened? They decided they need to bury him. They took him to the cave of the Tzadikim, and there was a snake in the beginning of the cave of Tzadikim. They wouldn't let him bury him there. And so they decided they can't bury him in the cave of Tzadikim. They took him to the cave of the Dayanim, and over there they buried him. I must tell you that Dayanim and Tzadikim, you understand what I'm saying? Good. Now this is obviously a piece of Agadah, right? So the snake has significance, where he got stung. Has I'm not getting here into Shur and Agadah. Tell you what happened here. And only the rabbis say we don't understand. We know why the Tzadikim didn't want him. The Hasidim didn't let him in their cave because he's a Rasha. But what about the Dayanim? Why did the Dayanim allow him to be buried with them? And they said something fascinating at the bottom of page 2. Maitama, De'avad kirbi ilai. He followed the opinion, the halachic opinion of Rabbi ilai. The Tanya that he taught, Rabbi Lai Yomer, Rabbi Lai says, Im adam If a person sees that they have a Yetzirah, they cannot overcome. You should go to a place where nobody knows you. And you should wear black clothing. You should wrap your head in black clothing. There's a meaning, dress in black clothing. And do whatever your heart wants. At the very least, don't desecrate Hashem's name in public. What is this teaching of Abilai? If you're going to do something wrong, at least don't flaunt it. Just go hide whatever it is that you're doing. I see some of your faces. Don't worry. It bothers me just as so much as it bothers you. Okay? The Gemara here says that this rabbi, at least when he did Averot, he did them in private. He didn't flaunt his Averot to the whole world. It's interesting, Ritba and Atosafot here. Let's skip them for right now. In source 4, in Masachat Tanit on page 7a, he says, I want to learn something. The problem is that I'm too tired right now to learn halakha. Can you teach me something in Agadah? He says, yeah, I'll teach you. The Torah and Devarim says that a man is the tree of the field. What does it mean that a man is the tree of the field? On the top of page 3 at the right, it means that the fruit tree, you're not allowed to cut down. You know the halakha? You come to conquer a city, you can't cut down a fruit tree. The Gemara says, if a Torah scholar is worthy, you may eat of them, but you may not cut them down. But if it's not worthy, you may destroy and cut him down. The Gemara says, if a Tamikacham is a bad Tamikacham, so he's not a fruit tree. He's a tree, not a fruit tree though. So you can destroy him if you need to destroy him. You don't, you don't let him stay in the Jewish community. But if a Tamikacham is a real Tamikacham, and he doesn't do things that are wrong, you should let him grow. You're not allowed to cut him down. He's a fruit tree. That's what it means that a man is like a fruit tree. If he's an upright Tamikacham, you respect him, you accept him. If he's not, you cut him down. And that leads us to another story about Rabbi Meir Balimir. Rabbi Meir, as I'm sure you know, has a very problematic rabbi as his teacher. Tell me who his rabbi is. Rabbi Elisha Barabuya. 
As much as he's a problematic individual in the realm of the Talmud, you should know that the Mekubalim, and whether you're a Kabbalist or not, this is a fascinating tidbit of information to know, the Mekubalim are deeply, deeply involved in the life and teachings of Rabbi Elisha Baravuya. He is the person who saw the truth, and it messed him up completely. And so for the Mekubalim, this story contains a lot more significance than for other people. Rabbi Elisha Baravuya was a Chacham, for different reasons, the Gemara mentions that he left the Jewish fold. So much so, they renamed him. They called him Acher. Acher, what is Acher? The other one. Yeah, not from us. He's from over there. Acher, he continues teaching Torah to Rabbi Meir Balanes. Rabbi Meir. Every time see Mishnah, Rabbi Meir learned that Mishnah. Who was his teacher? Rabbi Elisha Baravuya. When? When he already became a Rasha. The Gemara tells us stories. That Rabbi Elisha Baravuyah was riding on his horse on Shabbat. And Rabbi Meir was walking alongside his horse learning Torah from him. And at a certain point, Rabbi Elisha Baravuyah tells him, Hey, Rabbi Meir, this is Tchum Shabbat. You're not allowed to take another step here. And Rabbi Meir would stop and Rabbi Elisha Baravuyah would continue riding his horse. Can you imagine, by the way? Forget Rabbi Elisha Baravuyah. Imagine Rabbi Meir, like his rabbi tells him, Hey, it's Chilu Shabbat. It's Isul Karech. And then he goes down the road. You can imagine? Now the story obviously begins in the Pardes and the four rabbis who go to the Pardes and they see things they shouldn't see and they come down everyone comes out differently. Rabbi Akiva is the only one who survives that episode. That's a beautiful Agadah to unpack in a different shiur. But the question that's bothering the Chachamim is if this is true, that you're not supposed to learn from a problematic individual, how does Rabbi Meir Balhanes continue to learn Torah from Acher? How does he do it? Now obviously here, Acher, we're not, he wasn't a a sexual criminal like the first one, but he's still not an upright rabbi of the Jewish community. And the Chachamim have a few different ideas. And one of them talks about the ability, if you look on page 3, source 7, that the Pasuk tells us in it's Proverbs. They call that Proverbs? That's good. Okay. Hat oznecha. Make your ear listen. And listen to the words of the wise. And your heart should always be inclined towards my opinion. From here the rabbis say, the Torah is telling us, Mishnah is telling us, that a person should learn from Chachamim, but while they're learning from Chachamim simultaneously, they should always not be taking the words of the Chachamim. They should be trying to think, what does Hashem actually want? So I said this last night in a different context and it made some people very upset. But that is that Chachamim don't always tell you what Hashem wants. Now when you listen to Chachamim, you have, what does the Kadosh Baruch Hu actually want me to do? I'm coming to the Chachamim, but if the Chachamim contradicts with the Kadosh Baruch Hu, then that's a problem. You know, when I met my wife, and my wife, as you know, is the reason why I'm even here. She's the reason why I am anything that I am. And my wife is also Hasidic. So anything I say about Hasidim, I apologize in advance. Um, her Rebbe is still alive, for real. And my wife... <laughs> My wife, uh, when I first met her, one of our first dates, I said, you know, the Rambam says, she looked at me, who follows the Rambam? I looked at her, I wasn't sure if she was making fun of me, if she was crazy, I wasn't sure. So what do you mean, who follows the Rambam? Yeah, like, you know, he exists, but who actually takes him seriously? I looked at her and I said, wow, that's amazing. And that put her on the side. That should have been like a red flag. Hey, don't go here, yeah? <laughs> uh, but then it was one of our other dates. And I asked a question. Obviously, it was a rhetorical question. Like, if Moshe Rabbeinu argued with your Rebbe, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu came here himself and said, your Rebbe is wrong, who would you listen to? The answer? My Rebbe, of course. And I learned two things then. One, she really was crazy. And two, two, I learned that if you want to be a rabbi in life, you should be a Hasidic Rebbe. Because nobody asks you any questions. You can do whatever you want. That framework has obviously changed many times over since then. But how do you learn from a person who's arguing with HaKadosh Baruch Hu? The answer is very simple. You learn the things from them that are correct, and you reject the things from them that are incorrect. And that was what Rabbi Meir uh, was doing. And the Chachamim at the bottom, page 3 and the left, they say, so now we have two contradictory teachings. One is, you can selectively choose what you learn from Chachamim. And the other is, no. If a Chacham is bad, you just got to cut him down and cut him out of your life. So what's the answer? Chachamim explained, one is Begadol, and one is Bekatan. There are different ways to translate this, very simply. One is with an adult, and one is with a child. A child, the world is very black and white. You can't explain much to a child in terms of nuance. And you need to make sure that the influences on your children are completely pure. 
When you're an adult, you have the ability to entertain ideas, to accept certain ideas, reject other ideas, and therefore there's more room to whom you can learn from and whom you can't. And the other is very simply, gadol means a person who's of great stature, a person who's really a tamikacham, a person who's really learned, is able to say, well, I could read this book and take what I want and reject what I don't want. Whereas people who are ketanim, it's hard because we see the world as very black and white. And because of that, Rabbi Meir was different. Rabbi Meir, he knew how to take what he could take, but the rest of us, we don't do that. And that's precisely what the Chachamim uh, continue saying about uh, Rabbi Meir. In sources 8, he was like a person who eats a pomegranate, who eats the seeds and throws away the peel. By the way, another talent of my wife, she knows how to open pomegranates. <laughs> my life, I've never figured out how to open a pomegranate without getting my shirt red. So many reasons. Here, so many things, Mary. <laughs> Rabbi Meir clearly was talented the same way. And he knew how to take from Rabbi Vishabar Avuya what was allowed to be taken from him and to reject that which was able to be rejected or needed to be rejected. The Rambam codifies these teachings as a halakha. The Rambam tells us the following in Source 9. The tool in Maran Abed Yosef, they quote this exactly, almost verbatim. So I'm just going to read the Rambam to you. In Source 9, on page 4. En melamedim divrei Torah, we only teach Torah to a good student. So you can't teach Torah to, to bad people. It doesn't belong to them. You teach Torah to good people. What happens if the person in front of you is not a good person? First you make him a good person, and then you teach them Torah. But you can't give Torah to people that are not good. That's halakha number one. Halakha number two. Rambam says, The same thing is with the rabbi. Who is not walking on a proper path. Even if he is a great chacham. And the whole nation needs him. I mean, how great of a rabbi is he? He's the greatest one we have. Even if he's the greatest rabbi we have, everyone needs him. It's forbidden to learn Torah from him. Until he does Teshuvah. That verse from Malachi we mentioned about the angel. Told us, if the rabbi is like an angel of Hashem, you can learn Torah from him. And if not, it's forbidden to learn Torah from him. Rambam writes in the Halakha 9, the two, Rabbi Yaakov and Rabbi Asher, he writes that in source 10, Maran Shukhan Aruch, he writes that in source 11, everybody agrees that you can only learn from a Chacham who is an upright and a good standing Chacham. And that leads to the Lechem Mishneh in source 12, to wonder, why did the Rambam neglect to mention that some people are allowed to learn from bad people, and some people are not? Avodat HaMelech in source 13 asks the same question. Each one of them gives different answers. It's interesting, the Lechem Mishneh suggests that it could be that we in our generation are all Ketanim. We're all unable to differentiate between good teachings and bad teachings, and because of that, we can't learn from everybody. The problem with that though, and he mentions that, is that the Rambam didn't write it as code of law just for... Now, he wrote his code of law, even Hichot Mashiach are in there. So hopefully we'll return to a place where we won't be Ketanim anymore, in which case you'll need a different answer. If you want an answer for the Rambam, uh, the simplest answer you can find is the Rambam understood that that teaching was not a law. That was not the conclusion. The conclusion was, you shouldn't learn from them. Not that if you're big or small, and who the question, the question's not going to be me about this. The question's not on us. You can't learn from everybody. And so when it comes to Halakha, the poskim are pretty clear that you're not allowed to learn from a person who's not a, not perfect, I'm not going to use the word perfect, but who's not an upstanding Tamishnah. That's regarding Talmidei Chachamim who committed actual crimes. They're bad people. What about other scholars in the world? They're not bad people. They're just not our scholars. Non-Jewish scholars are not bad people because they're non-Jewish. I know some neighborhoods might feel that way. But for us here, we learn Chochmah from all kinds of people. Assuming they're not bad people. So how do we do such a thing? And this has always been blamed on some kind of Sephardic naivety. Like, we didn't know really who we should learn from or who we shouldn't. You open up certain Sephardic rabbis' books and you'll see quotes from Rabbi Moses Mendelssohn, from his Biur, because Sephardic rabbis, it's not that they didn't get the memo who Rabbi Moses Mendelssohn was. I'm not sure that if Rabbi Moses... Oh, I'm in trouble here. I'm on a camera. Let me tell you what I'll tell you right now. If Rabbi Moses Mendelssohn had lived in a Sephardic country, I promise you he wouldn't have ended up the way he ended up. Our Chachamim would have not, not allowed for that to happen. He writes wonderful things about him and the other, well, there's another biblical commentator came out of the same camp. You know what? Wesley. Who? Wesley. No, not Wesley. It hurt? No. 
Okay. He calls him the Rambaman. He calls Rabbi Moshe Mendelssohn. He calls a Chacham. So he argues with the Gemara. So he's not as learned in Gemara as he should be. But he's a brilliant scholar. You should know the only time that Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan spoke harshly against the reformers was when he lived in London. I have a whole shiur about this in the Shiviti UK Chavra, uh, the group. Uh, in London, the man who f- paid his salary here was an Ashkenazi man, most vile as they come. And he had a real war with the reformers here because of money situations in Israel, complicated. And he essentially pressured Sephardic Chachamim to write letters against the reform movement only to add fuel to the flame. But when they were independent of this Ashkenazi uh, individual who lived here, they wrote completely different things. Narambam, in the introduction to his Moenavukim, he brings three verses, opening verses. And when the Rambam mentions something, it's not just for nothing. The Rambam has a reason why he mentions things. And one of the verses the Rambam mentions is the third one, Hat Oznecha, tilt your ear, and listen to the words of Chachamim as long as they are in accordance with the teachings of HaKadosh Baruch The Rivash, the Rivash, one of the famous Chachamim, he writes in his letter, it's a very not nice letter about the Rambam, if I have to be honest, but in there, he says the reason why the Rambam opens this with a Moren Vuchim uh, with this quote is because it was the Rambam's personality to learn Torah from everybody. He accepted this in terms of wisdom that he was able to learn Torah and when it wasn't in accordance with what HaKadosh Baruch wanted so he rejected those teachings. Uh, the Rashbat, Rabbi Shimon ben Semach Duran in Source 16, he actually writes that. He says, And maybe, Shomea, maybe those listeners who are reading my words will suspect me that in the middle of my holy writings I'm bringing so-called secular writings. Then But don't blame me for this. It's improper for a chacham to reject words of truth, regardless of who said those words. And our rabbis already said, Accept the truth from whomever says it. And listen carefully to the reason why our chachamim accept truth, even from individuals that you might otherwise not want to learn from. Because we never accept the truth because of the person who said what they said. We don't accept truths because, oh, that's a big rabbi, so we rely on him. We listen to what that person said, we analyze it with our own minds, and if it is truthful, then we are actually not following him, but we're following the truth conclusion in our own mind. And because of that, it's really divorced from him. It's not because of that person that we're relying on, but it's in spite of them. They showed us a true thing. He says, "Harav Hamorezal and the Rambam and the Moren Vuchim, blessed memory. Lefish Hayat Derech Elu Adorech Elu Adorechim, because this was his approach. Patach Sifro Moren Vuchim b'Zav Pasuk. He opens up the Moren Vuchim with this verse. Vechen b'Fitichatol lePerush Avot. Higdim Shemona Perakim. And in the introduction to Perke Avot, the Rambam writes something similar. He says, "Kevan shedivarav divreitam raui lekabalam." When you hear good things from someone else and they make sense, you should accept them. Vehalom Moshe Rabenu Alav Shalom. Moshe Rabbeinu, a blessed memory, katav parashat Bilam. He wrote about Bilam in his book, no? Vesever Iov. Vehem in umot haolam. They were non-Jewish prophets. Why is he writing their prophecies in the Torah? Vekibel atzat Yitro. And he accepts the advice of Yitro. Now you know there's a machaloket when Yitro actually comes to the Jewish people. But according to him, clearly Yitro wasn't a Jewish person at this point in time. Vekadvam Torah. He writes Yitro's advice in his Torah. And Daniel and his friends learned the wisdom of the Chaldeans. We find that the rabbis admit that the Chachamim of the nations of the world are correct. He said, I'm not following just the Rambam's precedent, I'm following Moshe Rabbeinu's precedent. We accept truth from everyone. Harav Kapach, in source 17, he writes the reason why the Rambam opens his Moren Nebuchim with his Pasuk is exactly for this reason. And that brings me to source 18, the Rambam himself. Instead of saying what the Rambam would have said, let's uh, allow him to speak for himself. What do they call that nowadays? Mansplaining? Let's let the Rambam speak. <laughs> Veda, you should know. Ki adivarim sheomar beparakim halal, the things that I'm writing in these chapters, uvameh sheyavon nefeshot mepirush, enam inyanim shechidashim ani milibi. They're not things that I made up. Velo pirushim shanihim tzetim, not commentaries that I fabricated. He says, rather, from the words of our sages, 
וגם מדברי הפילוסופים הראשונים והאחרונים ומחיבורי הרבה בני אדם. And I collected from the writings of the philosophers, the early ones and the later ones, all kinds of scholars. וקבל האמת ממי שאמרון, you must accept the truth from whoever says the truth. ואפשר and it's possible that I'll quote something, ואולי אגרום שיכנס בלב מי שאינו מקובל עליו שם אותו אדם, שאותו הדבר נפסד, ויש בו כוונה רעה שנאי דועה לו, ולפיכך נראה לי להשמיט שם שם האומר, כי מטרתי שתושג התועלת אתה קורא. דרמאמס, I know that if I quote everybody by name, and I give everybody credit for what they said, that certain people are not going to listen to the words that are written in my book if I quote a person they don't like. So what should I do? I'm just not going to quote anybody's name. And then people will have to believe it. Why? Because they don't know who it's from. And the Rambam says, that's why I didn't mention any names in my introduction here to Prakavod. He knows the problem exists. He doesn't want people to have that problem. So the easiest way, the easiest solution, just don't tell them where he got his information. Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam in Source 19 echoes this in his introduction to Agadot. And he says that it's a forbidden thing, logically and halachically, for any chacham or any scholar to say, accept my opinion because you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Or do you know who he is? Do you know who she is? That doesn't work like that. You, no matter who you are, once I substituted a fourth grade class. Mistake of my life, by the way. Uh, you know, it's one thing to teach people who choose to come to a class. Maybe they didn't realize it was going to be so long, but they chose to come to a class. And then you have the people that they don't want to be at school. Their parents are making them go to school. As I'm there in fourth grade, these kids are jumping off the walls. I wasn't built for teaching elementary school. And, uh, you know, fourth grade, it's like uh, nine years old. There, People who teach that grade, they're my heroes. I just, I don't know how they do it. And... One of the kids, I say, listen, you go sit in your chair. And this kid looks at me, chutzpan, you never see this kid. He puts his hand on his hips. Do you know who my dad is? <laughs> said, I don't know who your dad is, but go sit in the chair. But there are people, they live their whole life. You know who my dad is, you know who my mom is, you know who I am. It's an unbelievable personality. And in the Jewish world, we have this problem too. Well, who do you think you are to argue with? You're not even a mandama. You don't even have a right to have an opinion. That's interesting, that's okay. Maybe I don't have a right to have an opinion. But I don't have to accept your opinion just because you are entered title here. If you want me to accept your opinion, you have to prove to me that you're right. The burden of proof is on you. And that's the way that Judaism works. The Rambam writes that in Source 19. An example, in Source 20, in the Mishneh Torah himself, the Rambam writes us the halakha, that there are things we learn from the scientists of the world, even if they contradict other things that we know. And the reason is very simple. We're not relying solely on those people. We've analyzed what they said. We've, accept, we've realized what they said is truthful. And therefore, we, the Torah is true. So we accept whatever is true because we make a blessing. He gave us a Torah of truth. If we're holding on to a Torah of lies, then it's not the Torah of truth anymore. And therefore, in Halakha, in Mishneh Torah, in the laws of Kiddush HaKodesh, the Rambam writes that the Halakha. And that's precisely why on page 7, Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam says that the author of the Mishnah, the compiler of the Mishnah, Rabbi Huda HaNasi, was called Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy rabbi. What is holy about him? Ki ha'adam, because a person, panav when a person abandons deceit and lies, ha'emet, and they accept truth, and they'll make this truth truthful, and they will take back their opinion if they are proven wrong, there's no doubt that such a person is truly a holy person. A person who is able to retract their opinion because they've been proven wrong is a holy person. What is Kiddushah? The definition of Kiddushah are people who are truthful people. Chacham Fa'ur. I can't do justice to this piece on my own. So you, I, I gave you a source here. You can read it afterwards or you can look it up. I hope you all own a copy of Horizontal Society. Then you can look it up in source 22 here. Chacham Fa'ur mentions the difference between what we call the duties of the heart and the duties of mitzvot, actions that we actually have to do. And he quotes Rabbeinu Bache ibn Fakuda, he quotes the Rambam, that the Bed Din is only able to police things that are actionable. You do an action, you break Shabbat, we can police that. You believe in something that's, that's kfirah, there's nothing that we can do to you because you believe in something wrong. Belief is not policed by Chachmei Israel. This is a very radical stance, by the way. You can believe there are definitely many people who disagree. And I'll read here in the bottom left of page 7. Obviously, people can be wrong and hold heretical views contrary to commonly held doctrines. But this would be the responsibility, page 8 at the top of the page, of the school, the yeshiva, and the teachers to explain and advise, not the judiciary. We don't say, ah, this person, he's a kofer, yada, let's kill him. It's the job of the yeshiva, the job of the chachamim, to persuade, to advise, 
to with gentle persuasion. Turn a person to believe in the right things. But we don't take a person to court for being a kofir. That doesn't work like that in Judaism. Upon analysis, it will be discovered that some of the most prominent sages held opinions which according to standard beliefs are to be regarded as heretical. Nonetheless, these men concluded Rabbi Yosef, uh, Yosef Albo were not heretics since they arrived at those beliefs in good faith. And here is what he wrote on the matter. I'm going to read to you in English. This is the translation of Chacham Fawar. But a person who upholds the law of Moshe and believes in its principles, that when he undertakes to investigate these matters with his reason and scrutinizes the text, is misled by his speculation and interprets a given principle otherwise than it is taken to be meant at first sight. Or he denies the principle because he thinks that it does not represent a sound theory which the Torah obliges us to believe. Or erroneously denies that a given belief is a fundamental principle which however he believes as he believes the other dogma of the Torah which are not fundamental principles. Or he entertains a certain notion in relation to one of the miracles of the Torah because he thinks that he is not thereby denying any doctrines which is obligatory upon us to believe by the authority of the Torah. So all of these people, they're rejecting ideas that are important for Jewish people to believe. They're fundamental. They think that's not fundamental. They understood the Torah differently. Whatever it may be, a person of this sort is not a kofir, is not an unbeliever. He is classed with the sages and pious men of Israel, though he holds erroneous theories. His sin is due to error and requires atonement. So here you can have a person who is a tamichachah, who is completely mistaken in their understanding of Judaism. Not because they're a kofel, not because they hate HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not because they don't want to believe in the Torah, but because of their study of the Torah led them to this erroneous understanding of the Torah. Says Rabbi Yosef Albo, this person is not a kofel. He's a toe. It's not a good thing to be a toe. not good to be mistaken. He has to do teshuvah. But we don't take him out of the category of Chachamim of the Jewish people. And that's why in the footnote, in source 24, Rabbi Yosef Aul writes, This is why Rambam and his son treated with deference and appropriate respect Jewish sages that held, from the point of view of Maimonidean tradition, heretical beliefs. I found the same attitude, says Chacham Fa'ur, among some outstanding sages of our time, representing both the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic traditions. This is a personal footnote here. It's not so common. Chacham Fa'ur just writes something personal about it, what he says. He says the Rambam and his son treated other Chachamim with respect, even though, according to their teachings, they were Kofrim. They should have been Kofrim. Because they were able to say this person reached this error, but it was a mistake. Not because they're actually bad people. And he said he saw among some, some outstanding Ashkenazi and Sephardic scholars of this generation that still behave the same way. This here, you should pay my money to read to you. What I told you right now, maybe you should pay Chacham for money for writing it. You can donate to his son. This teaching here should be life-changing because what we are so used to in the Jewish community of persecution of others, especially other Chachamim, and I'm sure that some of you who live in this neck of the woods maybe have experienced it once or twice in your life. The persecution of upstanding Talmidei Chachamim for saying things that you don't like. By the way, nobody's even saying they're wrong. yeah. But that I don't like what that person said is part of a tradition that is not ours. He's a Tamikham. I'm allowed to say he's wrong. He's also allowed to say what he says. And I don't have to kill him for it. Nor do I have to persecute him. I don't have to put Pashkavilim. I don't have to get the chief rabbis of Israel. Nothing. I can just say, this is a Tamikham who made an honest mistake. Maybe we should try to gently, gently persuade him to change his mind. But to call him a kofel, to say, to disgrace a Tamikham, that's not part of our tradition. And the Rambam and his son and our Chachamim, it wasn't out of naivety that they saw, oh, look, we'll accept these rabbis and those rabbis and people. How could you learn from Hasidic rabbis? Their whole framework is heretical. How could you learn from Ashkenazi rabbis? They don't understand the Andalusian method of Limut Torah. How can you learn? How can you? How can you? How can you? You're going to be left with nobody. Very quickly, you'll have no Chachamim in the world you can respect. Everybody becomes to you, we're going to be like when they said they became like grasshoppers in their eyes. Who do we say that about? About? Miraglim said that about who? About the giants. What happened to those giants? Nobody knows what happened to the giants. They killed them, yeah. That's what happens to people who treat other Chachamim like grasshoppers. Chachamim are not the. Chacham can be completely wrong. Not in an immoral way. I'm not talking about the first guy in the first story. His belief in Judaism is complicated. I can't accept that belief to be accurate. 
I can't accept that some things that I see Jewish people do are they fit within the monotheistic faith that I subscribe to. I think that some of them entertain, I say lightly, very pagan elements in their Torah. So what? So what? Is the first time in history you didn't have Chachamim in the Talmud that said there is no Mashiach that's going to come to the Jewish people. In the Talmud. Now, if you don't believe in Mashiach, that's one of the violations of the 13 principles of faith. The Rambam has some pretty nice words to say about what we should do to a person who doesn't believe in the 13 principles of faith. I'm not, adv- I'm not advocating for violence. <laughs> but between what the Halakha says to do and the way we treat a Chacham who genuinely reached a conclusion we don't like is that we respect them. And we can engage in dialogue. We can try to change their mind. But to cancel them the way that the world has taught us to do is so antithetical to everything that our Chachamim did and thought and acted that it's preposterous to me that in the name of Sephardic tradition we're willing to cancel every other Tamil Chacham of the world that doesn't subscribe to our very narrow view of the Jewish world. You heard what I said? They might not invite me back here either. So far I'm losing friends everywhere I go. Our Chachamim were not stupid. They were not naive. They were not frayerim in Israel. Our Chachamim were exactly what they were. Chachamim. Kabel et ha'emet mimi shamara. You see truth? I don't know who this rabbi is. I just quoted him in my book because something he said was true. Just like I would quote a non-Jewish philosopher. Just like I would quote a doctor. And speak, just, like, just like I quote anybody else. Because emet is what we're after. We're after the search of truth. I like source 25. I'm going to skip it for right now. I want to read to you source 26. This teaching comes from Mori Harav Yaakov Peretz in his book. All of his books are called Emet Yaakov. When I asked Harav Peretz if he could tell me more about his life and his philosophy, I told him he has no patience, right? So Rabbi Yonatan, you can summarize me in these statements. One, Emet, truth. Two, Yosher, to be honest, straightforward, to be just. Tzedek, to be a person of justice, of righteousness. The fourth, Ahavat Habiriyot Kulan, love, all human beings. That's all there is to my philosophy. Keep moving. Don't interview me anymore. Okay, that's what I got. I got four words out of five words out of it. In his book, Emet Yaakov, the book on Emet, he writes, En Emet Bepalganut. There is no truth that could come out of division. Amaru Chazal, a rabbi, asked about the verse, My, what does it mean? Vatihi Ha'emet Ne'ederet. The truth will become lost. Amar de Berav, the Gemara Sanhedrin says that they learned in the house of Rav. Melamed, we learn, adarim adarim The truth becomes adarim adarim. You know what adarim means? Yes. Uh, flocks. The truth becomes flocks and flocks and they disappear. What did Chachamim say? They're saying that something will happen that will cause truth to disappear. And it has to do with these words adarim, flocks. And there's two ways really to understand this. And the first is, and those of you who are members of the Chavua, and you have friends that are not yet members of the Chavua, this is going to resonate with you very much. In the third paragraph in verse 26, in the end of times, there will be very difficult obstacles in the Jewish world. There will be truthful people left. There still will be truthful people. They'll try to act with Nahag and to behave They'll try to act with truth in their everyday life. They'll try to incorporate the truth they believe in to their everyday life. But the peer pressure, the social pressures on those people. The audacious nature in which those people are overruled by lies and by focus on only the things that are external. you have any idea what he's talking about? There are certain communities that can only focus on sheker and how you dress, and what you look like, and how you present yourself. Those people will pressure the people of truth so much. They will not be able to survive in the way of truth. And ultimately they will give in. And they'll abandon what they know to be right. Because it's much easier to live an easy life than to always be right and be the crazy person. It's really hard to be noach. It's hard to be telling the whole world, guys, there's going to be a flood. They told me to build an ark. This is really what the Torah means. All those teachings, those buzzwords that you use don't mean what you think they mean. And then people look at you like you're crazy. Yeah, you learn with those weird people over there in the Hendon. I get, I understand. <laughs> you have no, you guys, 
all of us, all of G'dalaysa, all the rabbis, all the communities, whatever all word they use, as if all the rabbis they quote are ever talking to each other. All of them disagree with you. So what do we do? Ultimately, we give in. It's too much pressure. I want to raise kids. I want them to get married. I want to be able to go to school. I want to be able to go to the Beda Knesset and they'll give me an aliyah. I want people to eat my kashrut when I cook in my kitchen. Whatever attitudes you have. All of those pressures. What will happen? We'll abandon the emit and we'll be like adarim adarim. As flocks, people will leave the truth because it's too difficult to live that type of life. Exactly what happens in our generation. We ended up saying it's much easier to live mainstream. So they say only dead fish swim with the stream. It's much easier to be a dead fish than to always be right and have everybody hate you. And nobody trusts you. And they say you're a kofel and they can't eat in your house and they don't want to touch, play with your kids. They don't, want, they don't want to have anything to do with you. It's too complicated. The first understanding what our rabbis tell us, people will flock away from the truth because it's too hard to keep a life of truth. But then there's another side. There's one more side. That in the end of times, this is the opposite danger. That the people of truth will actually band together. Exactly like what you're doing. And every group will have its own group of truth seekers. And they'll say, you know the truth? The truth is mine. I'm the only one who has the truth. Those truthful people, they're not truthful people. I'm the only truthful people. The Cholachat and every one of those groups, they believe, they say all the other groups, they're all wrong. What happens? And they start separating from each other and fighting with each other and there's competition between each other. And we begin hating each other because we're truthful people. So we have to hate all the people. They're not truthful people. We end up disrespecting actual Talmidei Chamim. And inevitably, when people behave like that, the truth just gets up and leaves. Because the truth doesn't like to hang out with people that claim they're truthful. But they behave in a way that is so exclusionary to everyone else. And that is so full of hatred towards the other, the truth doesn't want to stay there. And therefore, Agapelus reaches the conclusion. Maskana. What's my conclusion? Accept truth in the bottom of page 9 at the right. Accept the truth, like the Rambam told us already, from every person who says truth. To respect and to treat with appropriate reverence. To every Torah scholar that is a God-fearing individual. Meaning that even if they live in error, but the error is from an honest error. They're good people. They, they want to serve a Kadosh Baruch and look at all the denominations of Judaism and don't view them as Ashkenazim or Sephardim or Orthodox or Conservative whatever groups you have in your mind look for the truth seekers in all of those groups in every ethnicity in every, in every place find the people that are truthful and respect them and certainly don't hate and cancel the people that don't act like you. People that are truly God-fearing individuals. Don't just cancel them because they don't act like you. But, and there's a big but here. Just because we accept the truth from everyone does not mean It is your right and your obligation. To do your own research and reach truthful conclusions. In your behavior. He says, you have the right at the same time while respecting everybody to say, as much as I respect you, I still think that what you do after the holiday is a pagan thing. As much as I respect you, I still can't accept that the things that you're saying are actually true. But I can, I can respect that you are truly a You mean well. And I want my kids to play with yours. I want to eat in your house. I want us to marry each other. I want our families to be friends with each other. I want our communities to be together. It's not a utopian ideal. This is the original Jewish belief. That just like we have to respect, we also have the right to say, I don't accept everything that you say. And it's hard for some people. For them, it's very difficult. How do you quote this rabbi, but you don't subscribe to everything else they believe? It's exactly that. I quote this rabbi, and I don't subscribe to anything else they say. That's exactly what I did. We always did that. And there's certain individuals, it's problematic. You quote certain, oh, this person belongs to that group of Jews. Why? 
Why is it any different than quoting anybody else? That's the way the Chachamim always thought. I'm going to leave the extra reading for another time. Rav Uziel has some beautiful pieces here. But perhaps I'll end off with one thing. Rav Uziel in the last source, he says that when we see a group of 600,000 Jews, you see a group of 600,000 Jews. Our rabbis instituted a blessing. You know, there's a beracha. When you see 600,000 Jews, you recite a certain beracha. What's the beracha? I'll read to it with you. If you look on page, there's a lot of pages, guys. At least not as bad as the gelatin source sheet. And the bottom right of page 12. Mihu, umahu, efu hachut kol So what really is the thread, said Abuziel? That unites all of humanity together. What really holds the world together? All people in the world together. Al Shelazu on this question, Meshivim Razal, our rabbis of blessed memory, explained b'ma'amarami hilchati what their halachic teaching. Hakatzar that is very short, umalet tochen, but it's full of quality. Lemor they say haroe uchlusi Israel. Someone who sees a large group of Jewish people. Omer, they say, Baruch Hashem. Elokeinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, our God, the King of the universe. Chacham HaRazim. Who is the wise one of all the secrets. She'en da'atam doma zo lezo. Ve'en partsufehem domim zelazeh. Because just like their faces are not similar, so too their opinions are not similar. That's what the Chachamim write in Masechet Berachot. This is a blessing rule of the Halakha. Haro'e uchulusei Yisrael. Says Rav Uziel. Someone who sees so many Jews together. Which is almost like seeing the whole world together because it's much easier to get a lot of people together and to get a lot of Jews together. You see any group of people together, you immediately are awakened with a question. Who was able to gather all these people and let them stay together? How, who brought all of these Jewish people together to the same country when just 50 years ago, man, now it's already 80 years ago, they didn't have the same country, didn't have the same heritage, they didn't have the same history. How did they all get together? The answer is, Baruch Chacham HaRazim. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the reason why people can get along with each other. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what does it say? A man and a woman were created as two completely separate creations. Sina, in your book on Bereshit, I don't know if you argue with me. But right now, man and woman were created literally as two separate creations. They're not even the same. And when they're commanded to get married together, so that's like asking uh, two completely different species to get married together. If you're married to somebody from, uh, you would realize that's... Uh, this. <laughs> so what does the Torah say? That HaKadosh Baruch Hu blessed them. It's kind of like when you see your friend, they're about to do something crazy, you say, may God be with you. you know, <laughs> that's insane, but I wish you luck. Right? Uh, this, this idea that two people can only coexist together because HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows it to be. Chachamim tell us, Ish v'isha, a man and a woman, Shekhinah b'nehem, when Shekhinah dwells among them, they, they flourish. And there's no Shekhinah among them, Ish v'isha, they lose a Yud and a Hayd, it's not a Gematria, it's a Gemara. It becomes Ish and Ish. It becomes two fires. The world gets destroyed by such people. When you see a world, and you say, wow, who pulled all these strings to make everything work? You order a package. You have Amazon here? You order a package on Amazon, and it comes to your door, and it's... How did that happen? Where did it come from? Who made it in China, shipped it on a boat, brought it on a plane, the, the whole, and then it ends up in your front door exactly the time they told you with a little picture in your phone? You know how many things have to work in order for that to happen? Who did that? Not the guy who was the CEO of Amazon. Baruch HaKam HaKadosh Baruch Hu has created a world that is so diverse, yet functions so perfectly well together, and the only people who ruin it are the ones who don't believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants it this way. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted us to all be the same, He would have just made us all the same. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you know, I have pets at home. I probably, I'm on camera. Those guys who make little YouTube videos, they'll make something out of that. Those clips. I have birds. I think they're so special. But you go to the bird store, I can't tell my bird apart from the other bird. They all look the same. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted us to all look the same, He would have done it. 
can all have the same skin colors, the same political opinions, the same religious values. We'd all be the same. It's not so hard for a Kadosh Baku to just do copy paste, copy paste. You know how many times they write books, just copy paste, copy paste. <laughs> That's how they do it. Kadosh Baku could have done that, but he chose to create a world that we are all different. And it's intentional. It's intentional that we're different. There is no mitzvah to become conformist with each other. There's a mitzvah to unite, but not to conform. That's the beauty of our Torah. The beauty of our Torah is like I told you in the beginning. When you see a chacham and they quote from places that you find to be unusual, it's not influence. It's not a derogatory thing. It's precisely what makes that person a chacham. When you see someone quote and they don't even know who they're quoting, it's because they accepted the truth from whomever they accepted it from. And when you see someone cross out in a book and say, I don't accept that to be true. That's the only reason we feel comfortable learning from everyone. Because we also reserve the right to have our own opinion. And so I'm asking us all, and I'm blessing us all, that when we go forward from here, especially as a Chavua, and I see this group of individuals, and I know that it's only going to get bigger. We're going to keep growing. The hardest part of a family of people that don't always agree, but are able to respect each other, because now it's easy, you're a small family. But as you grow, and I speak from experience, when you scale things, things always become problematic. You start to scale, and then you realize there's little cliques and little groups and little people that ah, they say about those. Ah. The job of all of you is to remind yourselves that the only thing that we received in our inheritance from our Chachamim, be they Sephardic or Ashkenazi, it's not the countries in which they lived. It's not every year I get invited to this Sephardic film festival. And I always, I always like decline the invitation. Why? I ask, what are you doing there? Oh, we have a belly dancer. We have a camel. We have a spice market. Like, I'm to myself, but, you know, my culture is not your custom. You know, like, what, what's going on over here? That's all you guys picked up from us? Even without the spices and without the camels and definitely without the belly dancers, we're still Sephardic. <laughs> Even without the gefilte fish or the herring or the vodka bottle dancing at the wedding on the head, they're still Ashkenazi. What made us who we are is the Torah and the wisdom that we learned and we taught and we gave each other. And when I see a Sephardic Chacham quoting Ashkenazi Chacham, when I open up a Teshuvah, let's say Rabbi Waldenberg, and I see him quoting Rabbi Chaim Palaji or Ben Ishchai, I say, that is so beautiful. It is so beautiful when we're able to say, I can learn Torah from everyone and still have my own way because I'm big enough. I believe in myself enough that I know who I am and I know what I am and I know what I can learn and I know who I believe and I know what I do and therefore I can learn from everybody. I can entertain truth from whoever says it. And so how did our Chachamim manifest this principle? I would argue that our Chachamim were this principle. That our Chachamim were only this principle. And that anyone who denies this principle automatically loses their ability to call themselves a Chacham. And so I'm asking you, take this, internalize this, Disagree with me if you wish. That may make you a chacham too. <laughs> but believe that the only Yerusha, Torah, Sivalanu Moshe, the only Yerusha is not the one from Spain, the one from Andalusia, from Yemen or Morocco or Poland or Russia or Lithuania. Those don't matter. What matters is we're all united to discover the truth. And that truth is going to come from the most unusual places. And the truth is going to be found in the most unbelievable spots you might imagine. And if you close your mind too much, the only thing that will happen is you'll lose out on opportunities to discover truth. And a God of truth who gave us the Torah of truth should bless us to continue walking on the path of truth together. Thank you for learning with me tonight.